Welcome to the Sacramentalist Podcast, a podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. We're your hosts. I'm Father Creighton McElveen. And I'm Father Wesley Walker. And today, everybody, I want cheers from the audience. We have a new host joining us. His name is Father Hayden Butler. Father, welcome to the show. We're really glad to be here, guys. Yeah, this is a dream come true. <laughs> That's what I like to hear. Yeah, Father Father Hayden, um, tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of where you are, where you're doing ministry. Yeah, so I, I'm in uh, Newport Beach, California. I'm the Associate Rector of St. Matthew's Church in the Diocese of the Holy Trinity of the Anglican Catholic Church. Um, I've been uh, in ministry there for about eight years now, and uh, or no, about nine years now. And um, uh, for a good portion of that, I was also working bivocationally as a high school teacher, primarily teaching literature and uh, and theology. Uh, and I got to spend a good portion of that bivocational time founding a school in the the town where our parish is situated called Pacifica Christian. Um, which is a Christian liberal arts school um, at, at the secondary level, and so uh, you know, I'm, 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 most of my ministry has been uh, educational in nature and spending it um, working with students. But um, uh, as of the last uh, year and a half, uh, I've been able to move uh, into full-time parish ministry, and I've been enjoying that a lot, uh, getting to focus there uh, at the parish. So, and happy to be here. Yeah, we're we are very excited for you to join us and. I think we're going to have a lot of fun. We we should tell the story too. We asked Father Hayden to be a host on the show. Gosh, it was probably about a year ago or so, and you couldn't because of some other commitments that you had. And then we were all at Synod recently, and I think I just jokingly said, "Well, Father, we're going to invite you on with increasing frequency so that you won't even notice that you're all of a sudden a host of the show." <laughs> And uh, it just kind of came up that, you know, you were had a little more freedom in your schedule and were able to do it. So it, it was a, a happy accident. Yeah, it was great. Synod was great. It's great to hang out with everybody. And uh, and yeah, and, and this is already one of the fruits of it. So, uh, you know, glory to God. Amen. Yeah, we didn't have to trick you or anything <laughs> of your own free will. At least not about that. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, awesome. Yeah, we're, we're super excited to have you. And um listeners um if you're on our discord or if you're in the comment section and youtube uh do give father hayden a, a a big welcome to the podcast we're excited for the future and you get to join uh for a pretty interesting episode uh so today we are going to uh, talk about the cardinal virtues in the past few episodes we've dealt with things like uh, vices. We've looked specifically at acedia. Uh, we did a whole episode on that, which was really interesting. Uh, but today we're going to to dive into uh, the cardinal virtues. And so when we talked about vices, we also mentioned virtues and how the kind of pursuit of the Christian life is removing these negative habits. It's sort of removing vice and replacing it uh, with virtue. And so we talked about the fact that vices aren't in themselves the same thing as mortal sin, but they can lead us into mortal sin. They're sort of the seed that propels us towards 
those actions. And so they they form um, sort of a tree with branches. And we, we talked about that. And they kind of contribute to those net negative patterns of behaviors. And so when we look at the cardinal virtues, what we're looking at, we're going to be looking at the the, the virtues that sort of do the same thing, but in the re in reverse. So they, they create positive patterns of behavior in our life. Uh, they lead us towards the fruit of the virtues, which is growth in holiness. Um, so just as a, as a quick recap, if you haven't been in maybe a catechism class or done any reading recently on the cardinal virtues, the cardinal virtues are prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. So those are the cardinal virtues. One thing I think to to maybe add at the beginning of this too, and and we ha we highlighted this slightly when we talked about vices and how the vice is in itself the mortal sin, the vice is kind of the ground of mortal sin. Is that the nice thing about thinking in terms of virtue ethics is it does shift you away from a sort of legalism or one-size-fits-all approaches to what you should do, your positive obligations, and allows for wisdom to tailor the virtue to a particular context. And I think that that's a really helpful way of considering ethics. I mean, there are so many different situations we find ourselves in, so many gray areas, and so it's I'm a little skeptical of ethical approaches that have sort of one one size fits all prescriptions. This allows us to say, okay, this situation might be a little different than that situation. And so our response will look a little different. And I, I just think that's kind of a refreshing way to consider our obligations. I think that when we, you know, we also are, are dealing with what the virtue conversation is uh, the stressing of the importance of habits and of habitual patterns. Um, which again draws out a helpful dimension in, in discussions of goodness and 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 of ethical behavior and ethical reasoning. Um, by you know balancing it out, we we sometimes think, you know, like you know everything you know always you know we we focus maybe too granularly on the on the moment or on a particular action, um, and we we lose sight of okay what is the pattern that's being established here and how is that how is that forming me and I think also with habits where. We're talking about the the unfolding of something within us, either something that is, um, you know, destructive within us, or the unfolding of something that is life giving within us, um, and it comports, I think, more with with the main scriptural metaphors of of what you know ongoing formation looks like, as I'm sure we'll get to today. Is you know, like athletic training, as Saint Paul says, or you know, the the horticultural parables that our Lord brings up about life in the kingdom. Uh, these have much to do with, um, you know, the, 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 these patterns of thought and behavior and action over time, uh, rather than uh, the instantaneous, the short burst, the quick, you know, sprint. Um, it's really setting us up for what does, you know, faithfulness, goodness, righteousness look like over the course of a very long period of time and even a lifetime. And, that, and I think the virtues just have that already cooked into them. Absolutely. And, and two, you know, we talked about uh, in our episode going over the seven deadly sins, we looked at how there's a sense in which you can kind of 
you can kind of reduce almost all of them to some level of like pride or idolatry. And you can, you can see that they're all sort of intimately connected with each other. And they do form this sort of bedrock for our later actions. And so when we look at virtues, and we will, in an episode coming up, we'll look at the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love, we'll see within those virtues that they do the same sort of thing. They, they act as sort of, you know, it's not conceptual in the sense that it's sort of not there, but they act as sort of uh, larger families for later action. <clears throat> and so it's re it really is helpful and I think important to see the, the kind of necessity in creating these positive patterns of behavior. It's something we deal with as priests um, in the confessional, for instance, you know, we're, we're listening and, and we're um, sort of trying to find patterns in your life, trying to help you identify. It's what we should all be doing as Christians when we do self-examination, is trying to identify patterns of behaviors that then do lead us to sin. And so they make us, you know, more susceptible to uh, a given sin that could be grave in matter. Uh, and so I think it's, I think it's something... Uh, Father Wes, like like you said, it, it's it is sort of refreshing and sort of helpful uh, to be able to to see how these how these things inhere and, and interact in our lives, um, and and I think that kind of leads us on to 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 unpacking the name cardinal virtue itself. So it has nothing to do with a bird, um, you know, maybe contrary to to some people thinking it does. Uh, the word uh, cardinal is really important because that comes from the Latin word cardo, which means hinge. So these virtues are the foundation on which all other virtues depend. This is the hinge point. And I think you see this in art depicted a couple different ways. Mm. The first is that each of the cardinal virtues are often depicted as having daughters. So there's a kind of fruitfulness to these virtues. But then also the other image that's used is that of a tree. And so the, the cardinal virtues might be main branches, but then there are always smaller branches branching off of the main branches with other virtues that are under those cardinal virtues. Yeah, it's sort of I think, born you know, out. I think you have, you know, I think I recall, I seem to recall from like Frederick Harton, the great kind of spiritual writer of the early 20th century, he said that the cardinal virtues, um, you know, are the backbone of Christian character, um, you know, to, to highlight that centrality, he says that they're the, the point of articulation where the soul, you know, the, the humanity of the soul should be united to the, hum the perfect humanity of Jesus Christ. And like, that's, you know, that, you can't say it in stronger terms than that, I don't think. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think that also points us to the fact that this is sort of a deeply human uh, reality. And so, like we've done in the past in some of our episodes, uh, we're kind of, we're going to look at sort of classical antiquity in conversation with the biblical text and then later theology to see that pursuit of these virtues isn't strictly within the realm of Christianity, but that all human beings pursue these virtues. And we see them being praised and pursued 
uh, in, in, you know, Greco-Roman philosophy is a great place to, to look at. You can see it in Hindu philosophy. You can see it in Buddhist philosophy. Um, and so just as a, a point of, you know, some, some examples we see in Plato, specifically in Plato's Republic, he mentions these specific virtues uh, in book four. And at certain points, he also will include piety as a virtue. Um, a lot of antique writers will do the same. And so I think it's at least worth the conversation to include it in there. Um, but Plato, speaking about the perfect city, the sort of ideal republic, states that in order for it to be well-established, that is to say ideal, it must be known as wise, brave, sober, and just. And he extrapolates that as he explains it to the society itself, the people that make up the society, the citizens themselves should embody the virtues of wisdom, of courage, of sobriety or temperance and justice. And that's a pretty, that's a pretty clear um, example, I think, uh, as Plato is sort of trying to, to understand what society needs to pursue in order for it to be considered good and good in a, in a ontological metaphysical sense. Good because it it actualizes its telos, right? The purpose of the state can only be achieved with the character of those virtues, and that's only possible if the people have those virtues. So there is a sort of feedback loop there in terms of the culture or the the state and the individual. It's if the people are like this, then the state will follow. But if the state is like this, then it's easier to have virtuous uh, citizens. Absolutely. Something we don't know very much about today. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's definitely a sort of um, political philosophy component here as it relates to good governance in a well-ordered society. But Plato's very clear that the kind of origin of the well-ordered society is the well-ordered individual, the soul. Um, and that, you know, from an institutional level, that sort of uh, begins at a sort of grassroots. Uh, and this... This gets picked up and really fleshed out in Aristotle's um, Nicomachean Ethics, where he argues that the goal of life itself is eudaimonia, which is sometimes translated as happiness, but I like flourishing better personally. Um, but this good, this happiness, this flourishing, uh, Aristotle says is, is a complete good. So it's desired for itself and not for the sake of anything else. Uh, it satisfies all desire, has no evil contained within it, and is a stable reality. And so for Aristotle, that means that human flourishing comes through acting according to reason. And the reason acquires, the human person acquires these virtues that help him actualize the goal, the telos, the, that eudaimonia, that flourishing. And so he specifically gets into, I think, which is really helpful, the idea that virtues are attained through habituation, that it is the use of these virtues, the replacement of virtue, um, of vice with virtue, that helps us to act virtuously and sort of grow in, uh, in status as a rational, reasonable, good person. And so and it seems it seems worth mentioning too, uh, Ahmet, with the the notion of eudaimonia is 
is that we're, we're again, virtue reorients us back in terms of, you know, moral thinking to a fullness, you know, to, mm. to highlight the, that kind of ontological sense you, you brought up earlier, Father West, the, uh, the sense that we're, there's a fullness of something that we can depart from in some way. And, and I think that in, in virtue is, again, not just that we have been found absent of vice, it is a fullness of a thing uh, and, and vice ends up being a departure from that fullness as well, the sum total of which being that thriving, that flourishing. Um, and it's, it's helpful, I think, reorienting again, like we, we highlighted at the beginning, that that moral conversation away from, okay, to, to, to be a good boy is to not have done something naughty today, right? And I can, you know, perhaps have not done anything naughty today, but still have not done anything good today. Uh, and, and those are not equivalent, you know? And, and, and so, yeah, that, that idea that there's a fullness and end to the human life um, it's significant to remember because then it, it, it reorients everything around a something rather than um, the attainment of a nothing uh, or the absence of something. And that actually, I think, highlights something very important. Uh, Cassian in in the conferences talks about religious knowledge, and he has this sort of chart, and he divvies up religious knowledge into practical and theoretical components. But in the practical side, that aspect can be divided up into two smaller sections one being a kind of self-awareness of sin and the means of correction that is the purging away of something bad the tilling of the ground right getting rid of the weeds and making the soil uh at least neutral or favorable to plant something in but then there is the discernment and order of the virtues as sort of the other component that corresponds to that so in other words there has to be a planting of something good so it's not just the taking away of bad habits there ha you have to fill fill it with good things and also, too, the idea of filling sort of presupposes that the thing doing the filling is itself full, complete, and good. And so there's a real sort of substance to it. Whereas the vice, in, in a similar way to sin, there's a sort of negation, right? It's, it's this um, absence. It's, it's, it's sort of ontologically suspect because it doesn't have the same level of substance that the good has. And so when we replace, you know, a vice and, 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 you know, we pick pride out and a vice goes in its place, what's being done is something substantive to the human soul that helps it actualize its purpose. Um, later on in, in the history of theology, someone like Aquinas will go into depth to talk about beatitude and the idea of pursuing beatitude that it has it has a real metaphysical weight to it um and that sort of the the spectrum of that pursuit when you're further away from beatitude uh there's this kind of sense of of um emptiness uh, of a lacking of a particular substance and so i think aristotle really does sort of get get start the process of really getting to this uh idea that it's that virtues are substantive and that the pursuit of those virtues is something that we should habituate. We should be doing habitually as habits, as patterns of behavior. Uh, and interestingly enough, he does sort of distinguish the idea of uh, virtue and skill, which I think maybe in kind of modern uh, philosophical discussions, you see this in sort of maybe the rise of some neo-Stoic thought, um, that virtue is thought of more of as a skill. 
it's more the the sort of uh, master craftsman kind of thing where for aristotle a virtue isn't just concerned with the end result but it's deeply concerned with the intention behind the action that may lead to a particular result and so the skill is kind of more focused on the end product whereas the habit of virtue is focused both on uh, the good itself the purpose and the intention behind it because you know you can sort of accidentally get to a good result you can do something that's mm, not so great maybe kind of problematic and then some somehow good results from it and that's not the same thing as a life spent pursuing virtue uh, and really making that the pattern of your behavior. So I think also too we should look um, we should look at at, at a biblical example, um, something very explicit. Uh, if you look in the wisdom of Solomon, uh, fantastic, one of my favorite pieces of wisdom literature. Uh, you can see in chapter eight, verse seven, again, very explicit. It says, if anyone loves righteousness, her labors are virtues, for she teaches self-control, prudence, justice, and courage. Nothing in life is more profitable for mortals than these. A really interesting thing that, you know, we've got basically the, the sort of Greco-Roman philosophical tradition saying, hey, these are the four virtues we should all be pursuing. Then we have a biblical example that ties the pursuit of those virtues into the sort of pursuit of righteousness. And I think I think there's there's some interesting sort of nuance there. It's 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 revelation adding something onto revelation. So there's sort of this natural revelation happening in the philosophical pursuit of virtue and goodness, the good, the true, the beautiful. And then we have biblical revelation saying, yes, that's all true and good. And then we have this new component of the pursuit of righteousness, the love of righteousness being added into that equation, which I think is actually pretty interesting. Um, because not only is it a sort of virtue that every human being can pursue, whether or not they're Christian, whether that they've been baptized or not, these kind of cardinal virtues are incorporated in and form the bedrock of Christian virtue. So just because a, you know, a virtuous pagan in the time of Plato exhibited courage or justice or temperance, there's also this idea that in the Christian life, those form the bedrock of our behavior and they actually help propel us towards holiness so it's not just goodness it's not it's not the pursuit of virtue to be quote-unquote a good person but there's also this idea that it's it's helping us to be better prepared and better and more receptive in a way to the working of the holy spirit in our lives and in, in growing in holiness and righteousness and and a right relationship with god which i think is interesting and it seems to be it seems to be that's where the, where the two meet. Um, is yeah. it was maybe within the domain of these virtues. You know, Harton to quote Harton again, he he sort of uh, he characterizes 
cardinal virtues as infused virtues, which I think a lot of Christians would probably kind of raise their eyebrows at, because typically we talk about infused virtues as just the theological virtues that we'll talk about next time of faith, hope, and charity. And he you know, he says that ultimately, yeah, these the, the three theological virtues um, can rightly direct, um, you know, what is what is you know the excellences that are brought out in in humanity through the development of the cardinal virtues to the end of beatitude. I think he's just kind of echoing Aquinas in that. Um, but but he's also he, he lays a heavy emphasis that you know the in the you know the the place where we should expect the formative influence of the Holy Spirit, um, who delivers to us these these gifted virtues of faith, hope, and charity, um, that the place where we should expect you know the fruit of that gift to begin to emerge is probably in the the ongoing formation and direction of our lives in these cardinal virtues. Um, and so it, it, and that's that's the place where we should start to we should expect to find them at work and where we should expect to start seeing the effects of that um, that that grace at work in our lives. Um, and so it's not despite them, as I think sometimes gets said as, oh, well, you know, now that we have, you know, you know, a, a Christian, you know, a Christian understanding of things, now that we have, you know, a, a kind of basic pneumatology, now we can dispense with you know, thousands, a thousand years of, you know, of classical moral reasoning. It's like, nah, that doesn't seem to be the case. And, and I think, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's strong evidence to suggest that, um, that it's, a, it, it, it retains a serious place in any Christian's life. Um, and, and that we can, there's a lot to learn still from it. Um, even if it, you know, even if it precedes the Christian tradition proper. Well, and there, and there seems to be a relationship of codependency between cardinal and theological insofar as the theological transfigure or elevate the cardinals but the theological has to be expressed through something i mean faith hope and love are somewhat interior dispositions that have to be expressed somehow and so how do you express that well you know if i'm if i love someone or something then uh, faith, then the cardinal virtues will be exertions of that love and so it's very similar i think if if those are if those are our dispositions towards god then the cardinal virtues will be how we manifest that towards each other in some ways the summary of the law i think comes to to flesh both of these out you know if if you love god then you also love neighbor and in loving neighbor we love god yeah and and i think i honestly i mean i think that is like the, the you know the perfect segue to take us into a discussion on the cardinal virtues themselves and i i you know when when we were preparing this episode my you know plan was kind of redirected um it, through reading saint augustine and how he defines these particular virtues now there's about a million and one ways you could go about defining these things but i think in light of what we've been talking about and sort of those two things meeting together that that the cardinal virtues kind of find their fullest expression in their relationship to the theological virtues in the relationship to the life of grace that god gives us uh, augustine's definitions begin to make a little bit more sense um and and it our first known encounter with uh, cardinal virtues as such, as we talk about them under that name, comes from uh, St. Ambrose in his commentary on the Gospel of Luke. But really, St. Augustine, uh, kind of 
the the student of Saint Ambrose, right? Saint Augustine is really kind of pushing this forward um, as he kind of dives into their particularities. So Saint Augustine defines the virtues for us uh, like this. He says, "Temperance is love giving itself entirely to that which is loved. Fortitude is love readily bearing all things for the sake of the loved object." Justice is love serving only the loved object and therefore ruling rightly. Prudence is love distinguishing with sagacity between what hinders it and what helps it. Which I think at first blush, that's not how most people would have defined these virtues. But I think it's really important um, to kind of pick out what St. Augustine is doing, because I think it really gets to the heart of, of the kind of conversation. Um, well, particularly because it orients it in that, you know, it situates it in the exercise of love, right? Which is yeah. the foundation of the Christian ethic of to love one, to love God and to love one's neighbor, um, but also situates it in what I think is a, um, you know, an especially Christian, uh, you know, ethical trait, which is it leads from a kind of what we might call an ascetical, you know, out of the word eschesis, right? And that kind of train, training oriented and and um, and uh, uh, metaphor for how we are formed in virtue um, that is popular in the writings of St. Paul, especially um, this idea of, you know, okay, yeah, when something, when a, when a cause or a, a goal, an end has captivated your life, um, how is your life, you know, radically reordered towards the attainment of that thing? Uh, to the attainment of that end and if you know if now we've been we've received the gift of charity uh within our hearts that you know calls us forth and directs us to the end of beatitude then yeah what what should what shape should we expect that to exert on the rest of our person uh and and then so i think augustine's you know framing this in the terms of love um, that exerts a kind of you know that exerts a exerts a gravity on some one of some or other of our capacities. That's it's a very practical and helpful way of uh, of defining it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, I mean, I think if we if we think about it in terms of love, it really does sort of reorient how we engage with these virtues. Um, you know, for instance, we'll start with we'll, we'll start with temperance. You know, I think I think if you ask someone on the street, maybe maybe we'll add a segment where we ask people theological questions on the street, like Billy Eigner. Uh, maybe we get him to do it. That would be a hoot. <laughs> um, I think if you ask them what is temperance, they're probably going to say, "I don't know, not drinking, so so self control to some extent," which is ultimately true. So, you know, there is an aspect here when we talk about temperance, where we talk about the control of self, abstinence, the moderation of appetites. But that's a very surface level understanding of what's actually going on at the heart of temperance. Um, you know, and if you if you look at history, right, we see the word temperance gets thrown around in a lot of cases, um, specifically maybe the temperance movement. Uh, in in history, in in American history specifically, um, where you know, essentially the idea of the movement was to prevent people from drinking alcohol. Right? There's this abuse of alcohol going on, and so the movement itself was this: we we have to get rid of all alcohol. Right? It's it's an abstinence movement, 
which is actually really unfortunate because that absolutely destroys the nature of temperance itself. When we did the, uh, I think it was our season on Anglo-Catholic devotion, we began with a discussion about the church calendar. And this is really helpful in terms of how Augustine frames it about giving oneself entirely to that which is love, because that is one of the purposes of the church calendar is to teach us how to walk in such a way that our whole lives become oriented towards the object of our love, which is God. And we talked about how the church calendar oscillates between these seasons of feasting and fasting, because both are necessary. Um, if we were only ever fasting and never feasting, then we would be uh, ignoring some of the great things that God has given us. And if we were only feasting and never fasting, we would be gluttons who also couldn't really fully enjoy what God has given us. And so um, the church calendar walks us through this practice of temperance, directing us ultimately towards a greater good, that is love, the love of God. Yeah, and, and I think too, We've, we've talked about sort of ascetic disdain and, and we've, we've kind of gone through that there's this sort of spectrum, right? You can either wholeheartedly and fully kind of accept something or you can go the other extreme and hate it so much that you, you know, kind of pull yourself from it. Well, there's something that kind of that, that takes place here. Uh, the temperance movement itself is a deprivation, right? It's not actually being moderate. And it's not being balanced. It's saying when you have, this is a teetotaling movement, you have to get rid of alcohol completely. When temperance itself is this idea, it kind of has it as its aim the good of a person or a group of people. And because that's its aim, it balances the extremes, places you into this position of self control or stability which allows you the fullest amount of focus possible to pursue what is ultimately your good, right? It's love giving itself entirely to that which is loved. You have to have focus. You have to have a, a sense of sacrifice and a fully given sense to pursue that good. And that requires self-control. You know, it, re it restores to us, you know, the, that this is an actual relationship that we have with God. Um, you know, and and by by couching it in some of the the realistic terms that we would, you know, I think employ in any other relationship we would call real, um, you know, we, you know, when we look at you know the, the temperance, for example, you know, it's use it's much more useful to ask, uh, is there a point um, at which, or are there you know benchmark points along which I am progressively impeded in my ability to love, you know, and that's a really fertile question that can yield some excellent self-knowledge and and also doesn't require us to do that kind of categorical ban necessarily not to say there aren't things that deserve a categorical ban but in this case you know it, it, it rightly identifies that people are different um, and that there are different perhaps points at which love becomes impeded in them um, but that that sidesteps a lot of the um, the immediate errors you can make in kind of creating a moral standard or establishing a moral rule um, for for oneself or for a community. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's also, you know, it, it keeps us away from, I think, what can be the inadvertent, you know, interior byproduct of the, of the opposite way of thinking, which is, oh man, what's the line at which, you know, 
you know, God is going to cut off my fun, you know, and, you know, I'm going to, you know, so that I can go up to that, I can have fun to a certain point, And then after that, the fun's over. Um, and I think that's a, that's a terrible, that's a terrible way of relating to anybody of, of saying, okay, this person has this line. And like, once I cross it, they're like, they're really mad at me for, for, you know, having too much fun. Uh, and, and, and I need to, I need to stay on the, just this side of it. So that I say, you know, I'm just there, this, this edge of their good side. Um, and instead asking, you know, what is the point at which um, this relationship becomes inhibited um, or impeded? Um, at what point can I not participate freely in this thing? Um, that that is that's much more uh, productive. <laughs> yeah, and and then doesn't lead us to to see goodness as the kill joy, the point at which joy is killed. <laughs> yeah, and it it prevents it prevents a sense of sort of gamesmanship, like moral gamesmanship, where it's like, oh, I can go up to this point in the line and we're all good. I go over it. Whoopsie, I've messed up. And it really kind of makes it a more like an experienced reality. It's something like in, in all of our lives, we know like, um, you know, I maybe shouldn't drink that much because it's going to impede, you know, my activity or my, uh, focus as it relates to my spouse or to to the project, whatever. We kind of intuitively know those things. But we also intuitively want the loophole. Like we want to make it a game where it's like, well, I know that's the line and I can take it right up and as close as possible to that line and, you know, have all my fun. It That kind of gamesmanship really is inherently pagan at least the way of thinking about it right i mean we're conceiving of god as a sort of killjoy you know if i have too much fun then I'm, there's going to be a punishment to that uh, which is not right at all like he's zeus or something you know i mean that's kind of the whole point of greek mythology as soon as you get built up to a certain point the gods just love to tear you down and um and so we have to avoid thinking about god like that but also that whole view fails to actually be centered around the good because the good is what brings us the most joy or the most happiness or the most flourishing. And so, I mean, you know, you see this, I think, in Christian communities, uh, like in dating, you know, like how how far can we go physically before it becomes problematic? Oh, man. <laughs> if, if you're having to, if at a certain point when you start playing that game, the whole thing is impure anyways, right? Even if you do stay within the bounds, it's still, there's still this kind of gratification that's going on that is unhealthy. Um, and so it's... It, it, the the point is that these virtues teach us to reconsider what is good, what is our good, and it's right. not just an, an a kind of cheap enjoyment, which is often I think what we gravitate towards. And what is the good of the thing? You know, what is it teaches us again? We're relating also to God, to neighbor, but then also to creation. Mm. You know, which I think is again that needful corrective to a kind of contemporary Christian. You know, maybe just habit where of seeing salvation salvation and and the work of the resurrection as being you know restricted to just you know the relationship between god and humanity and forgetting you know a la romans 8 that this has a cosmic dimension to it you know which um implies i think uh, a, a restoration of our relationships with that creation right there and temperance becomes a question of how do I exist in love um which means to to acknowledge and to act in response to the best and highest good of this particular thing. Um, and with some things it's gonna be, I should leave that alone. And with some things it's, I have limited interaction. With sometimes it's, I can have, you know, a, a pretty robust interaction with this. 
um, it maybe even seasonally, right? It's there's no point to that of temperance for imbibing poison dart frogs, uh, but there you know there might be a point of moderation for you know enjoying sourdough bread or for enjoying malt, you know like for enjoying IPAs, you know, and then those are those become questions we can ask. What is my what is the the point of temperance in which my relationship to this part of God's creation is unimpeded um, or is or is actually at a point of flourishing? Pumpkin spice lattes, seasonal. Don't get me started. <laughs> Don't get me started. Not until after the feast of Christ the King, you know, <laughs> to give you an arbitrary rule. <laughs> That's that line. That's the line. <laughs> well, I think that, you know, we can jump into the next one, which is fortitude. Um, and, you know, Augustine says, fortitude is love readily bearing all things for the sake of the loved object. I think this one's really good. This is the, this is, this is important because in, in a lot of conversations with the, the cardinal virtues, you'll also see this sometimes maybe listed as courage, um, which I think is a good, is a good word for this as well. Um, there's certainly an aspect of courage that is required in bearing all things for the sake of the loved object. But this is, it, there's this idea of it, of the ability to sort of um, take on, to bear, to sacrifice for that which is loved, uh, which also means that there's a steadfastness which defies pain and suffering and difficulty for the sake of the of the beloved. Um, and and you know I think we can also tease out some you know the idea that there's uh, patience and determined effort needed in the face of that discomfort. Um, but I think it's also important to remember that fortitude isn't just, you know, bloody mindedness. It's not just, you know, running at a wall saying, well, I'm just going to destroy this thing at, at all costs. Um, but if you look at someone like Aristotle, when he talks about fortitude, there's this idea of like a reasoned resolve, a sense of, of, of a sort of rational, um, not stubborn, uh, but a strength of will that helps us bear and persist in the face of uh, maybe pain or suffering for the pursuit of the good, the true, the beautiful. Um, and I think that I think that's that's a really strong understanding of fortitude. I'm getting ready to preach on the story this Sunday of uh, Moses with the golden calf and immediately after that is when he goes to God and basically says, take me instead of them, which I think is a great example of fortitude. It's, it's that bearing of the burden of the sin of the people on their behalf to God out of love for them, um, which is quite a heroic act on Moses part, given that he's just given them the law and they're, you know, completely doing the opposite thing. He just told them, I mean, most of us would just throw our hands up and say, I've had enough of you. But Moses goes all the way to the mat for the people out of his love for them. Love bears all things. Yeah, I'm I'm reminded too of of the sort of of how of how someone like Tolkien, for instance, when he writes a character, you look in the Lord of the Rings, sometimes people have have issues with how the characters of the Lord of the Rings uh, like Aragorn, for instance, 
where's the internal struggle? Where's the a hero that has like some bad, but you know, mostly good, and we get to see him struggle with it, and you know, he makes a bad mistake here or there, but ultimately comes through in the end, which isn't the point at all that Tolkien is trying to make, right? This th these are heroes. These are um, you know, Aragorn himself isn't. 50, you know, forty nine percent bad and fifty one percent good, and it all tallies out in the end. He is good to his core, right? He bears burdens. Um, I think he's a really good example of fortitude. Frodo is a really good example of fortitude in sticking with the task that is set in front of him, which is ultimately for the 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 chiefest, the best good, and. They don't waver. They're human beings. They suffer. They struggle. But Tolkien, in his in his uh, providing of this of this sort of grand mythology, is teach. He's trying to teach virtue. He's trying to show you examples of complete sort of virtuous um, characterizations, not not ambiguous characters, but wholly virtuous characters. And also, too, when you look at, um, you know, bad, evil characters, they're wholly evil, right? There's not like, oh, they're they're kind of good, and I kind of commiserate with the evil person that is the one who wants to kill and destroy everything. I kind of like him at the end. No, they're evil. Evil is evil. Um, maybe unlike some of the characters in maybe the Rings of Power series, which may be controversial. Um that's a, that's a that's a bonus episode at some point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Well, we'll have to have like Father uh, Father Damick on to talk about it or something because mm. you know that's that's his podcast. Um, but I think I think it's really interesting to think about it in those terms. With, with fortitude, you know, it, there's it, it reminds us that there's a recurring pattern in the scriptures of the test. Um, of being tested, and that there is um, there's something that can only be revealed through testing um, and and overcoming. Uh, you know, I think Bishop Scarlet pointed out in his synod uh, sermon um, for the for the uh, synod mass uh, that you know he, he cited this 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 you know the the glory of overcoming of, a, of enduring to the end, as the Lord says in his letters to the churches in Revelation. Right, he who endures to the end. Um, I will give the crown of life, and um, that I, I think that that you know to circle back to your Acedia, uh you know, uh, podcast a couple weeks ago. The you know, you know this idea of will I stay put um, when it when I don't feel like it anymore? Um, forget for a moment, you know, whether I'm being you know completely you know rocked by something actively, but let's just talk about that interior of I'm like I'm just I'm not feeling it anymore. Uh, so will I will I stay put and continue to uh, you know, honor my commitment, or to be or to just sit in the per in perplexity, um, you know, and and until that moment comes, there's something that is unrevealed in a in a person, um, and our character, whatever we can say of it, is kind of on a has an asterisk next to it. It's on probationary status until that thing is revealed. Um, and and so yeah, the, the person who hasn't been you know tested you know either by the the aporia of a of a plateau season or even just through active suffering, 
um, there's there's something there's a question yet to ask about whether they'll they'll stay put something you know because that adversity hasn't forced virtue within them to take that shape yet yeah i like the idea of of test not in the sense of of like you know some cosmic pass fail no. Um, but in the sense of, of like purgation, right? Of, of being purified, of being moved from one state to another, um, which isn't always a pleasurable experience as we would understand it. And this, this happens to us all the time. And I think we don't even always fully appreciate it when it does. I mean, you know, you have a stressful day, you come home and you lash out at someone in your family and you, you might even say or think, I have no idea where that came from because it was previously a veiled part of who you were. And then there has been a sort of apocalyptic unveiling and now who you are is. And so then there's a cognitive dissonance sometimes between that story that we tell ourselves about ourselves and the reality that's happened. And so then what do we do? And that's where fortitude I think comes into play. Um, it can become very easy to become like Judas. I mean, that's one of the problems with Judas, I think in the gospels is that once it's revealed to him, he there's this cycle of a downward spiral that he can't get himself out of because he doesn't really have that that virtue of fortitude among other things yeah uh father wes you and i have have talked about this at length but the the, the kind of idea that maybe this is the virtue that generationally we lack um millennials yeah 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 that, that we we struggle with fortitude i mean i would be pretty willing to extend it to maybe the last 50 years maybe the last 60 years or so um and say that kind of from a standpoint of a modern society because of we we have this you know massive illusion of choice and distraction and options and opportunity that we we sort of think we're we're pursuing some good. We think we're we're sticking to our beliefs or our convictions. Uh, but when you actually look at the sort of the the particular actions along a, a sort of line, um, we're so inconsistent. You know, we oscillate back and forth, um, and some sometimes in in some ways, uh, those changes are out of our control. Uh, you know, socioeconomic forces may force us into working multiple jobs or changing careers or doing things like that. And those are real, real true things. Um, but, you know, like the, the, the sort of variation in church attendance or the lack of um, maybe sticking with a degree program or something like that um, kind of does kind of put a light you know, the sort of interrogation into our actions and, and our motivations. Where, where I've seen this the most at a parish on the parish level is often with sort of millennial families who will say things so that they'll come to a church and maybe it's a smaller church and they'll say things like, well, we like it here. We love the liturgy and we love the theology and we love the preaching, but there aren't enough young families. And it's like, well, there aren't enough young families because people like you come in and then they don't stay because there aren't enough young families. But if you just stuck it out for a couple months and the next young family comes and they see you, then of course, you know, there's this kind of addition uh, that can occur. 
Uh, so it's, it's uh, yeah, we sort of flitter about. I should say I did a Twitter poll and I asked which cardinal virtues do each of the generations lack. So um, I think for boomers, it was the lack of justice. For Gen X, it was a lack of temperance. For millennials, it was a lack of fortitude. And for Gen Z, it was a lack of prudence. So I guess these things come in cycles. Just alienated our entire audience. That's right. That's right. <laughs> hey, everyone. Well, you I lack guess that of, means I don't like fortitude. <laughs> you lack virtues, audience. Sorry. Well, we all do. Well, if, if they didn't like we... virtues, they wouldn't need this podcast. So That's it. That's it. Well, you know, when we think about that in the mundane realities of parish life and community is you know, we constantly have to bear with one another and bear one another, you know, in last week's, you know, gospel lesson, right? The, the people who bore their friends to the feet of Jesus, right? There are real times when we do carry each other or are carried by someone, um, you know, and I think that we, we, we sometimes think of that as a very um, costless thing. Um, but, you know, it's again, a repeating <laughs> refrain through the New Testament of, an exhortation to the churches to forbear with one another patiently in love, um, and and it presupposes that you're gonna you're gonna grate on each other. You're going to you're going to be painful to each other at times and burdensome to each other. Maybe a lot of the time. Um, and you know to to think that to and again to reorient our perspective of participation in the church from I'm here to have a pleasurable religious experience to I am here to find a place to reasonably commit that after the initial enthusiasm wanes, then I begin to be a Christian uh, when things begin to be challenging to me. And I kind of want to do something else. Um, and, 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 and I think the church is one of the few places left that, you know, is that has the equipment, the, the, the you know, has, has, the, has the stuff to call us to that and to give us a place to practice that. Um, and because I don't, I don't see it a whole lot of places. Everywhere else is pretty, you know, given to the customization and optimization cultures that say, "Oh, well, you don't like that? Let's let's just adjust the UX on that, and we'll, version 2.0 will be better than this one." You know, and the church, you know, is one of the few places where we have the opportunity to be inconvenienced and annoyed, uh, and actually um, uh, bound to situations where forgiveness is is required of us. Uh, and yeah, I don't know where else you learn fortitude except in a place like that. If you don't love the church in front of you, you'll never love a church. Right. Which is which is hard and it requires suffering and discomfort. <laughs> but it's good. It's ultimately what we're supposed to do. Um, yeah, so let, let's jump to the next one, which is justice. Uh, this is a fun one. Uh, um, Augustine says justice is love serving only the loved object and therefore ruling rightly. And I think, again, if we kind of took to the street and we asked people about justice, you'd get a pretty, uh, maybe fairness, um, maybe some, some, something related to a legal system or, or, you know, political reality. Um, and, and, you know, again, those, those are part of this understanding. But I think what's really important is that the word justice, um, 
when we look at at its sort of Greek root, it has more to do with righteousness than it does any sort of understanding of maybe like fairness or um, government or a legal system. Um, and so I, I, I also like to think of it as sort of moral goodness. Um, and so if you if you sort of look at the the sort of ancient Greek world and how it understood justice or righteousness, it's more understood within the context of a community or a society. Um, so it's the those sort of moral obligations that bind a society or a group of people together and how those moral obligations relate to each other and how our actions impact them. Um, and so when we look at Augustine's definition of, of love serving only the loved object, then we see that you know, when one acts justly, one is just, one acts in love towards the other for the good of the other. Um, I remember talking to, uh, to Bishop Chad when I was his curate and we were just talking about love in general, having a, you know, one of those like mid afternoon conversations in the office that just goes into two hours of, you know, theology and conversation. And we were talking about the kind of nature of, of love and, um, agape sort of divine love and he said you know one of the things he he wanted people to to understand was that the fact that divine love is 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 wanting the good for the other which may mean that it's not what they want right the good may be something that is challenging to you um, but ultimately we're he we're here to pursue what is good for us um, and sort of that that kind of interplay, that interaction within the life of a community or a society as it relates to what is good for the other person, that sort of connection is justice in a sense. Um, and, and how we, how we realize that, how that binds us all together and how it informs how we live in community is justice. So it facilitates the good within those within that network of relationships. So actions and behaviors that facilitate our ability to pursue that good. I had, I don't remember where, but I've heard justice defined as rendering the other their due, which I think is helpful, but it raises a couple questions like who's the other and what's their due <laughs> and do I do what I'm supposed to do, I do I act on on what's due them. But no matter who the other is, I mean, I guess you could point to someone like Anselm in terms of of what we owe God. Um, he certainly makes that argument. But I think in terms of other people, whatever our relationship to them is, it always is founded on the fact that they're an image bearer. Um, and so what we do to them is never done in isolation, but it's always done ultimately directed toward God. And so it becomes, it, it, it reconfigures our, our understanding of justice because you do get this kind of, and I think this is sort of an American Western individualist way of thinking, sort of what do I owe you? I mean, it's very much a, a reverberation of Cain's question, you know, my brother's keeper. And I think a Christian understanding of justice is, yeah, we are. Well, that gets to That's the right. idea of like obligation, right? Not, not what do I owe you or like a right? I hate, I hate the conversation about rights. Because we don't have rights. We have obligations to each other. Right. Rowan Williams gave a good lecture about um, 
engaging liberalism. And I, I thought it was a really excellent talk. And one of the things he did mention is that rights language, while sometimes flawed, can be really helpful, especially in a world that's gravitating towards different forms of despotism and tyranny, that rights rhetoric can actually be a, a way of insisting on the humanity of the other in a sort of radical way. Um, sure. It has a, not, it not has that, a, ten, not, a ten, yeah, it has a tenuous, you know, usefulness to it, you know, yeah. as, as a, as a way station to something more profound, you know, and that, and we have to acknowledge that too. Justice is one of, one of those ones where, you know, I think as, you know, we, we seem to be admonished repeatedly in the scriptures that our, our sense of justice is very tenuous, you know, and when we're, we're cautioned in many places from um, summative, you know, judgments on things and, 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 and adjudicating things in a final way, um, not because such things are impossible, but because they might be um, presently unattainable for us, you know, as we are, you know, and, and so it puts a, um, it conditions our sense of justice. Um, because like you said, you know, Father West, you know, you know, giving to the other their due, right? And, and you know, well, what is the other, what is their due and, and who am I um, in relation to them? Uh, those are those are ponderous questions. Um, and so it teaches us, I would, I would think a kind of, when I think the Western, you know, in its on its best, in its best light, the Western, you know, you know, law tradition kind of errs on the side of, we, we should be as, as, um, as cautious as possible um, because we get this wrong so easily, right? We, we mis, uh, misidentify the good of the other, or we, or we, or we uh, make, we err in attempting to give the due to the other. Um, you know, in terms of rights, why it's un unsatisfactory is that it, it, it stops and it settles for a very shallow vision of the human person that doesn't see them as this, you know, ponderous likeness of God um, that has an, an iconic quality that, you know, that reveals and is an epiphany in a way. I mean, it settles for a very superficial set of things that are easily attainable, detectable, and quantifiable in order to, um, in order to constitute a person well enough that we can all get along with each other, which draws you draws us back, Father Creighton, to your 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 sort of conception of fairness. Um, but then then too, you know, I think about justice in the in the sense of, you know, of the assertion of myself over others, right? And I, you know, I, I was I just got done teaching um, at Hildegard College, the uh, we were reading the Humanities by Aeschylus. Um, and uh, you know, the, at the end of which is a trial um, of of the tragic hero. Um, and the, the, the Furies are, are wanting his blood for, you know, murdering his mother and, you know, the gods have commanded him to do this, so he's appealing to them for divine help. And the question is like, yeah, we're, this is a big mess. Um, we have multiple overlapping senses of rightness here and, and, what's, and, and what, which one is, is to prevail here. And justice ends up becoming this kind of unsatisfying, you know, uh, concentration of vengeance so that it doesn't fall too maybe too heavily on on him you know even though it's already haunted him within an inch of his life and then we kind of end the, end the play that way and, and i think we we think of justice that way as as the you know the restraining of, of our ability to smother another or oppress another um and and again that's a very that's a that's a very uh, what do i want to say uh that's just that's a very crass and a very um you know uh, like awful and 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 uh, that's yeah let's just say like an awful way of of envisioning again this this fullness this thing that's meant to be a perception of what we really are and what the other really is it settles for like uh, okay how do we avoid oppressing each other as little as possible which draws us back to the rights language 
Yeah, and and you know it's easy to do this, right? Especially kind of post post enlightenment political theory. We sort of understand like doing as little harm as possible to your neighbor is the sum total of sort of our our just action in the world. That's so unsatisfactory. You know, that's so that's so deeply flawed um when we understand the other the other a is a person um but that there's this this quality this pursuing of of their good of loving them so much as to pursue their good which means i might sacrifice for my i might sacrifice my own self right i might be i might be called upon to exercise the virtue of fortitude in bearing a burden with them or helping them pursue uh, their ultimate flourishing uh, and that that sort of intricate network in in of interwoven and complex relationships uh, that make up a a group of people in society um, and how we act on them. It's a big question. I mean, I feel like we could we could probably just keep talking about justice for the rest of the night. You know, that's such a it's so deep. That's uh, a deep a deep mine. It would inevitably uh, get us into some trouble too, I'm sure. No doubt. <laughs> it's us. <laughs> um, which you know, let's uh, maybe some some people uh, would need to hear this, but let's talk about prudence mm-hmm. um, as it relates to to you know maybe people's actions on social media and other things. Um, Prudence is love distinguishing with sagacity between what hinders it and what helps it. And I, I remember talking to a teacher in high school. We were talking about prudence. Um, and I mean, basically, the way he talked about it was, can you distinguish between what is right and what is wrong? At a very basic level, can you determine your course of action? And if, if you can, then, you know, towards your ultimate good, then you're exercising the virtue of prudence. And I think that's actually really interesting because it's the, the, the sort of sense mechanism, the mechanism that St. Augustine is t- that, uh, identifies that's doing the distinguishing is love, which I, I think is unique. It's interesting because we might say like, oh, it's the person distinguishing between uh, what helps it pursue its good and what hinders it in its pursuit of the good. Um, but there is really this sort of substantive, almost, you know, personification here of love doing the the distinguishing, um, which I think is really, it's really cool. I don't know. That's a really lame way to talk about it, but it's cool. No, I, I think that gets us, you know, off to a great start because like Father West said earlier, we, we eventually have to do this. Um, we have yeah. to actually live these things and, and, and in real relationships that have a million factors to them um, and we and to be able to parse between them. But yeah, these virtues ha- have to be expressed in our lives actively. Uh, and, and, and so they can't remain theoretical to us. Um, but I, but I, you know, I think that you know, you're, you're highlighting the, the problem there is on one level, you know, in, in theory, prudence is very straightforward, right? It's, Oh yeah, in any given situation, um, what best best assists love, the ends of love. Um, and yeah, great, 
you know, we can we can go home, you know, but but then you know you get into some some even very simple interaction with someone and you already realize like, whoa, I'm I'm already up to my neck in different um change multiple you know changing dynamic factors with this person. Um and what is the end of love worked out here with them? So it requires not just a kind of you know well structured sense of of these virtues, but also you know, prudence for me, it, it seems to draw us into the the realm of what I might call like strategy or imagination, right? Which is which I think is an, an underappreciated faculty of that we have is is okay. How do these things get rendered in plausible scenarios first within me in my inward life, then that then lead me to pick one and try to enact it um, in my outward life, um, and and so you know this is the this is the that virtue that trains the the plausibility generator of, of of our soul and 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 then you know tells us yeah that's likely to work or that's that's not likely to work but it, it requires it's more art than science it seems a lot of the time of you know you know making on the ground um decisions that you know sometimes we have to make very quickly you know then it, it, it's very difficult it's overwhelming and you could see why it maybe like gen z might suffer from with this one because and struggle with this one because I can't think of a generation that has had more um, information bombarding it than any than any other generation prior to it. Um, and so, if you were constantly, you know, had under a fire hose of, of information, yeah, imagine, you know, thinking of what is plausible, what is likely, what is, you know, prudent here. Uh, that, that'd be very difficult. That'd be more difficult than if you had fewer options. The good news is we don't have any Gen Z listeners because our episodes are too long. We're not on TikTok or whatever. <laughs> So we won't offend them. They're not listening. <laughs> we'll get some comments for that, no doubt. But but prudence is what prevents us from getting lost, right? Lost in the weeds. Yep. Um, when when the rubber meets the road and things get messy, prudence provides a through line still towards the objective that we have. It's it's knowing the means to the end. Interestingly, Aquinas um, ties prudence to the intellectual virtues as well, right? If wisdom or knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. Um, in other words, knowing the means to the end and how to get there uh, in intellectual activity is also very important. Um, so the telos, not only knowing the telos, but knowing knowing the sort of tributaries one has to take in order to get to the the head of the river is is really important. This is why it's important also, if you're a layperson listening, to tell your pastor or priest why you want to meet with them ahead of time. Hey, can you talk versus, hey, can we sit down and chat about X, Y, or Z? allows Amen. them to think about the purpose of the meeting so that they can steer you in the right direction better than if you spring it on them right then and there. It's a pet peeve of mine. But it's a good shout because it needs yeah. to be said. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I mean, like, it's like Tolkien's, you know, Tolkien writes, you know, you know, the difficulty of giving advice, right? Uh, even the wise may err. And, you know, even if for the sake of friendship, we would offer counsel to someone it has to be conditioned with that of, of like, wow, it's it's an extraordinary ask, um, you know, when someone says, what should I do with my life? <laughs> we give as much help as possible. Yeah, and, and I think there's an important aspect of discernment included in, in the action of prudence, in exercising the virtue of prudence. Um, it's, in a sense, maybe one of the most complex of these virtues. Uh, it because on the surface, uh, Father Hayden, like you said, this is this is the action one, right? This is the rubber meeting the road. This is the straightforward, 
hey, make the right decision. But if you tell someone, hey, make the right decision, that's huge. You have to A, know your purpose. You have to know what you're pointing to, which can be a massive undertaking. Um, you know, the amount of times that I've talked to people in a pastoral context where they're like, I don't, what am I supposed to do? I don't know what my purpose is. I don't, I don't know how to orient myself in this direction. I want to do these things. I know I should be better at this, this, and this. Or, you know, man, I hate it because I act like a jerk and I do this, this, and this, and I don't want to do those things anymore. But, you know, I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what I'm doing. The sort of aimlessness that takes place in the human soul. That's a very real human experience. And so just the idea of knowing what you're, what the good is that you're aiming at can be difficult, let alone understanding what choices and what actions and what motivations are going to help or hinder you getting there. That's a, it takes a lot of discernment and a lot of self-knowledge, a lot of critical examination of the situation, time spent dealing with these issues. It's not quick. I mean, you, you don't have to be exhaustive. I mean, we're not limitless cosmic intelligences that can run an algorithm and figure out, oh, well, you know, this percentage of times I'm going to need to pick this or do that. But we can spend time with it. We can be, um, we can be still and we can think critically, pray through particular decisions and, and, and situations so that we're as informed as we can be. Also, you know, prudence should probably be the most elastic of these cardinal virtues, I think, because especially from a pastoral perspective, life is so messy. And so what prudence looks like in one situation, one pastoral situation, it may look totally different than another pastoral situation. It's kind of that thing. I, th I think it's one of the prayers that's prayed before you hear a confession that you wouldn't be too harsh on those who are already kind of, uh, hard on themselves, but that you wouldn't be too lax on those who are too lax on themselves. It's, it's, it's being able to see people where they are and sometimes progress for them may not look as dramatic as, as it does in other situations. You know, it's, it's small steps moving forward and in the right direction. Um, but that takes a lot of wisdom, I think, to, to make those discernments because, uh, once you get in in the position of being a, a priest or a pastor, you realize most situations are not the ideal situations, and you're called to work with what's in front of you. You know, and I and we have to we have to accept that there's there's going to be a degree of um, of discomfort with that, um, and we and there has to be. You know, the only way to avoid it is if we adopt, I think, what is a counterfeit of prudence and just say, oh, you know, um, it seems to work well enough. Um, you know, that's that's the kind of lazy um, and, and I think ultimately probably evil counterfeit of prudence, which just says it's good enough. You know, it works well enough. And to be content with that, you know, we have to you know, we have to, you know, again, acknowledge the reality that our perspective is limited. Um, it's it's not you know, we, yeah, we can't run every scenario exhaustively. But, you know, I think we should always feel the pressure of it, you know, at the same time, especially in pastoral settings of. No, I, 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 you know, I, there is a true end of the human person, 
it is not just, you know, whatever provisionally works well for the season and we'll reassess later. It's like, no, we, we are in our decisions that form habits advancing towards beatitude or not. Um, and that matters, you know, this moment matters in that pattern of things too. And so that discomfort is warranted. Um, even if at the same time we have to say, you know, I may only be able to help direct you to a very local kind of, you know, concern, right? To use that, those small steps language you use, Father Wes, of, you know, prudence, maybe I can only see very, uh, you know, a very short distance along the way here with you um, or in my own life. And so, but if it's, if it, even if it's a, you know, embarrassingly near object, uh, and if we're, if we're, confident that it is on the road to beatitude, it's still okay to apprehend it <laughs> um, and to not try to like go stride, you know, bounding through the darkness just for the sake of making leaps and bounds. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and I think, you know, by, by way of um, a sort of conclusion, you know, it's, it's interesting how, how these virtues react and interact with each other because in that conversation about pursuing maybe that small step towards your good, towards beatitude, in a lot of cases, that's going to require fortitude. You know, there's going to, there, there has to be some level of uh, a willingness to bear that discomfort and maybe what feels like you're not actually progressing because you're taking one step at a time, but stick with it stay committed, stay focused on the good, let the love pursue that good, because that's ultimately, however small those steps are, half steps, quarter steps, whatever they are, you're progressing in the right direction. And so you're exercising prudence there, exercising fortitude. Maybe to get to that next step, you need to exhibit some level of moderation and self-control. You need to be temperate with your love. Um, and so the, it's, to me, I think a really beautiful thing that we don't sort of, um, you know, I, I think of something maybe like like in D&D &D or something uh, or a role-playing game where you pick an attribute and you're like, well, I'm just going to pump my, you know, skill points into that particular attribute and I'm going to get really good at prudence. It's not, that's not how this works. What we're talking about really is integrated behavior. It's an integrated life. And so as we maybe, you know, habituate prudence as a particular example, well, guess what? We're going to also grow in fortitude and we're going to grow in justice and temperance as well. And, it, you know, that gives force and it gives a, a sort of holistic sort of uh, movement to the acquisition of virtue uh, that I find both personally encouraging and extremely helpful in understanding how this life of pursuing virtue really builds on itself and how as Christians, uh, as we'll you know, cover in an upcoming episode on the theological virtues, how those virtues are incorporated into this matrix and how we grow in faith and hope and love uh, as we as we pursue 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 i think my uh, my mic cut out so <laughs> just pursuing god and 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 sort of uh the life of grace um as it was to to the acquisition of these virtues uh, i just think it's a really beautiful thing
any any further thoughts final final kind of thoughts to wrap things up I think it's great looking forward to theological virtues yeah yeah I think it'll be a I think it'll be a fun time well listeners I think that leads us uh, to one of our favorite sections and this is Father Hayden's first what we're into technically not his first he was on the one time with bishop scarlet so he had to do this one other time but his, fir his, his first, first time as, as a host, host. Yeah, yeah as a host so no pressure but it should be memorable so father hayden what are you into uh right now i am um you know enduring the tragic romance of being a cowboys fan along with father wes um and you know like all tragic romances it has you know points of um, you know, seeming uh, felicity and then, you know, a, a, a catastrophe uh, emerges. And it, it seems to be happening already for us. So at least we didn't get dragged along too far down the road this year. Um, so, you know, trying to see that with fortitude to the end, um, you know, uh, expecting to get my heart broken. Um, but then uh, other than that, um, yeah, I've been, uh, we, we moved recently and in our, um, uh, my family and I, and, and in our new um new place, uh, I discovered uh, that unlike the photo that was on the website for it, uh, a very aggressive English ivy has had completely run feral through our backyard. Um, and so I've been visiting the day of the Lord on that uh, progressively weekend by weekend um, and clearing it out only to find that uh, underneath the feral ivy were a bunch of quickly concealed and uh, and chopped down stumps all throughout. So it's been stump day uh, every Saturday for a while now, um, digging up stumps. Um, you know, which you know restores one to a you know I think a sense of uh, you know agrarian fantasy, but at the same time does get old after a while as new ones start start popping up all over the place. So yeah, you know, flexing the uh, the green thumb a little bit, and by green thumb I mean. Um, clearing the land so that my wife can plant, plant pretty things in the backyard. So th that's been occupying a lot of my time. It's exactly that twofold motion we were talking about earlier. You're purging and <laughs> she'll plant good things. Exactly. Yeah, she's virtue. I'm vice. <laughs> I'm, I'm purgation, hopefully, at best. <laughs> that sounds like something my wife would say. I'm def definitely vice, I think. Um, but Father Wes, what are you into? Well, two things. I think the first is I have to give a plug to Back to Virtue by Peter Kraft, which is a really helpful kind of primer on cardinal and theological virtues. So if this is a topic that you're unfamiliar with or something that you'd like to get into a little bit more, I would highly recommend that book to you. Um, we went through it uh, with some of the, the younger guys at the parish that I work at and um, had some really interesting discussions about it. And I, I think Kraft is a great writer anyways. And uh, so it's always always worth reading things he's written. The other thing I'll say is uh, teaching. Um, so I've, I've never stopped teaching. You know, when we first started the podcast, I was full time at a, at a classical Christian school uh, teaching Latin and I loved it, but um, it just didn't work out to, to continue with that. And I went full time at the parish that I'm at now in Maryland. Um, my son just started school this year at a private classical Christian school about five minutes from our church. And I had previously been interested in subbing, but it just never quite worked out. And so I've uh, I've been put on the sub roster this year and have gotten to teach quite a bit. Um, and it's nice because they kind of know me and they know that I know what I'm talking about most of the time, as long as it's not Spanish. And so um, I've gotten actually teach uh, instead of just, you know, do just only study hall type 
class periods or whatever. And so that's been really fun, just being in the classroom, building relationships with students, even if it's in a small role like a like a substitute. I still really, really enjoy it. And it's able to kind of scratch an itch that I've, I always have of being in the classroom. So that's been been a lot of fun. Father Creighton, what are you into these days? Well, I'll join the club. I'll say two things. Um, one, the serious thing, um, it was it was recently announced at Synod uh, that I will be uh, starting at a new parish in Atlanta uh, called St. Hilda's, um, St. Hilda's in Inman Park. Uh, so if you're in the Atlanta area and you want to drop by, uh, you're more than welcome. We'd love to have you. Uh, I'll be taking the taking over at the parish uh, the last Sunday of November. Um, and so I'm I'm in like full on pre-planning, trying to get everything together mode, uh, which is really exciting and fun. Um, but it's also a little bit nerve wracking, you know, jumping into a new parish is always uh, has has its um, joys and its difficulties. Uh, so very much looking forward to that. Uh, and that's taking up a good chunk of my free time and intellectual capacity. Um, but the other thing that uh, I'm into um, is, uh, you know, I we've talked about this, I think, on the podcast before, but uh, I like I like Halloween. Um, I like I like a horror movie. Uh, I like, you know, sitting with candy and handing it out and all of the, the things that come with Halloween. So I've been on a bit of like a old horror movie kick. Um, and so I was watching some Universal Monster films, um, you know, Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, those sorts of things. Cheesy, uh, but really great. Um, the Mummy, um, all that stuff. Anything with, uh, you know, it, it always seems to fall out this way, but anything with Christopher Lee in it, um, you know, he, he was just the king of of uh, kind of hampy, cheesy horror movies of a particular time. Uh, and so I'm looking forward to watching my favorite horror movie, uh, which is The Wicker Man, also with Christopher Lee in it. Um, Father Wes, I think you're muted. I was just about to say we should do a sacramentalist go to the movies where we watch uh, the Wicker Man, and then we should watch Midsommar and talk about them. Yeah, I mean, we ha they, they, I mean, those two movies have to be in conversation, I think, yes. especially since Midsommar came out. But The Wicker Man is fantastic, strange, surreal, and we're talking about the 1970s Wicker Man, not the Christopher Nolan or not the not the Nicolas Cage uh, bees Wicker Man. The bees, not the bees, not the bees. <laughs> Hey, he has an Academy Award, all right? <laughs> Don't be knocking Nicky Cage. <laughs> mind mind blowing. Um, it was yes, it was for the, the Left Behind movie, right? Oh boy, <laughs> another podcast. <laughs> yeah, um, you know the Wicker Man is fantastic. the The Sacramentalists endorse it with five chalices out of five. Um, it is it's a fantastic film, and uh, it's very strange and surreal and. Uh, deeply religious. Um, it's a good Anglo-Catholic horror movie. But also parental guidance, just so you know. I have to put that out there. Uh, we do not want to get emails. Yeah, parents. That you watched it with your kids. Understand that it is an adult uh, film and it does have some adult content. 
but yeah, those are those are kind of the things that uh, that I've been into. You got to watch the Pooh Bear horror film. The one you told me about, I know. Yeah. <laughs> the fact that that exists just is hilarious. Pretty, pretty weird. Yeah. It's millennials eating their own childhood at this point. You know, it's it's great. <laughs> oh gosh, that's so true. <laughs> all because we lack fortitude. Yep. <laughs> It's yeah, the really poo- what it all comes down to the Pooh Bear horror movie exists because of our lack of fortitude. <laughs> really, it's a commentary on the whole loss of of that virtue. Ooh. All right, listeners, if you like what we're doing, uh, please follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Like, subscribe, and comment on YouTube. And if you would leave us a rating uh, and review on iTunes. If you're interested, you can join the communion of Patreon Saints for five dollars a month. And that goes to help support this podcast and also gives you access to our Discord uh, and a few interesting little bonuses every once in a while. And as it is uh, Father Hayden's first time as host on the podcast, Father, will you uh, pray for us as a closing? I'd be glad to. Let us pray. O Almighty and all-knowing God, without beginning or end, who art the giver, preserver, and rewarder of all virtue. Grant me to stand firm on the solid foundation of faith, be protected by the invincible shield of hope, and be adorned by the nuptial garment of charity. Grant me by justice to obey thee, by prudence to resist the crafts of the devil, by temperance to hold to moderation, by fortitude to bear adversity with patience. Grant that the goods that I have, I may share liberally with those who have not, and the good that I do not have, I may seek with humility from those who have. Grant that I may truly recognize the guilt of the evil I have done, and bear with equanimity the punishments I have deserved, that I may never lust after the goods of my neighbor, but always give thanks to thee for all thy good gifts. Plant in me, O Lord, all thy virtues that in divine matters I may be devout, in human affairs wise, and in the proper needs of the flesh onerous to no one, and grant that I may never rush to do things hastily, nor balk to do things demanding, so that I neither yearn for things too soon, nor desert things before they are finished. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Amen.